The end of Matthew 25 is what we'll consider this morning. I've entitled this The Ultimate Divide, or The Ultimate Separation. What's the last thing that Jesus decided to give to his disciples, or teach his disciples and his followers, directly before he went to the cross? Well, we find it here at the end of the Olivet Discourse, and it is in regard to his second coming and the judgment that is going to come with him. Specifically, how he's going to judge the nations for how they treated the people of God. And this is the final event. That judgment will be the final event, which will then usher in the kingdom of God on earth, we're told in the scriptures. The nations will be judged based on how they've treated God's people. Now, up to that point, Jesus' hearers have been told, you might remember, that they needed to prepare for his return. And they needed to invest in eternal things or kingdom goals in mind, so that they're ready for when that kingdom dawns, and so that they can enter into it and be with God forever. Well, now he's going to tell us that all of mankind throughout history can be split into two categories. There's this great separation or a great divide, and the two categories are the wicked and the righteous. But what we find throughout the New Testament, and Matthew's Gospel makes this clear as well, is that everyone starts off in the first category, the wicked. And so it begs the question, how do we go from being wicked, those who are against God and rebellion against God, have broken God's laws, how do we go from that category to being in the category of the righteous? And Jesus is going to tell us himself in this passage. So we begin in verses 31 to 33. We'll see the final judgment, and he gives it in a summary form. He tells us then specifically what's going to happen to the fate of the righteous and then the fate of the wicked. So what does he say, first of all, about the final judgment in verses 31 to 34. He uses an extended metaphor of splitting goats and sheep. The uh, shepherds in Jesus' day would have had a common practice if they had a, a mixed flock. They would need to separate the goats from the sheep because in that particular instance, as night fell and it got a little colder, especially during the winter months, they would want to get the uh, goats inside into some sort of um, warm area that would be away from the elements because they didn't have the fleecy coat to keep them warm. And so you'd often have to split them apart at the end of the day. And the shepherd would be well able to do that with a few calls and he would be able to separate them out. Jesus is going to talk about a separation, but of course it's not based on any temporary weather pattern. It's based on something else. He begins in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. So he comes to rule and to reign, he says. His first coming, you might remember, was as a humble servant. And there are many Old Testament prophecies about how the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to be humble. He's going to come to serve his people. The government shall be upon his shoulders, Isaiah tells us. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be scorned. He'll be rejected, ultimately. But then it also has all of these passages in the Old Testament that foretell how he will come in victory and triumph and at the head of an army, and he will be the conquering king, and he will set up a majestic eternal kingdom. And so what we see is his first coming, he fulfills the first half. And in his second coming, he is going to fulfill the second half. Daniel chapter 7 gives us one of these Old Testament prophecies where it says, the Messiah will be given authority and glory and sovereign power. Or in Zechariah 14, he tells us, then the Lord, Yahweh, my God, will come with all his holy ones. And when he comes, he will initially judge and then he will set up his kingdom. 
Now the judgment spoken of here at the end of the Olivet Discourse, some get a little uh, confused or they, they raise a question. Is this the same judgment spoken of at the end of the book of Revelation? Revelation chapter 20 speaks of a judgment. Are they talking about the same thing or something, uh, something different? And what we find is if we compare those two passages, he's, he's talking about something a bit different. They're both judgments, but they're judgments for different time and different purposes. This is what's often referred to in theology as the, the bima seat judgment, because the, bima, the word bima comes from the original language, one of the words used here. And this is a different judgment to what's called the great white throne judgment, spoken of in Revelation chapter 20. But this, the purpose of this judgment is to split apart or divide, to separate, to evaluate all the peoples of the earth who are on the earth at Jesus' second coming. And those who are righteous are in that category. They will go to his right-hand side and they will enter into his eternal kingdom that he's going to set up. And those who are in the wicked category will go to his left and enter into eternal judgment, he says. Now this teaching, we should pause and just be aware of, this type of a teaching is not very popular in our Western society today. The idea that everybody doesn't get in, this is exclusive, and we don't like exclusivity in our society, it seems. We want everything to be inclusive, everyone's included, but Jesus says very pointedly that is not the nature of reality. All religious paths do not lead to the same outcome, he says here. All actions do not lead to the same end, and Judgment Day will make that clear. Many people in society, if they believe in salvation at all, any sort of idea of heaven or paradise, many of them really believe in salvation by death. All you have to do to get in is die. Because everyone, except for the really, really, really bad people, maybe, is going to go to the same place. But Jesus says, no, that's not the way it works at all. He is the holy judge and as the holy judge, he proclaims what that judgment will look like and how the division will be made. Verse 32, he goes on and he says, all the nations, that's all the people groups of the world, will be gathered before him and he will separate the people, the individuals and the people groups, one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. In verse 33, he will put the sheep on his right, the place of honor, and the goats on his left. You know, in this lifetime, it's sometimes confusing to know who is following God and who is not. Who's a true follower of Jesus and who's not. But on Judgment Day, it's going to be very clear. No one will be wondering. Jesus will make it evident. We're told in Joel chapter 3, another Old Testament prophecy and passage about this. He says, I will gather all the nations and then enter into judgment against them. And Jesus is talking about that same thing here. All the peoples of the earth will be gathered and every individual within those people groups will be judged. And the judgment is, an, is not just a temporary measure. It's an eternal judgment. There's no going back. There's no second chance after this. It's a sobering reality. Now the purpose of the judgment is to determine who is going to enter into Jesus' eternal kingdom that he's setting up on earth. Who's going to enter that? Who's going to be in that? And this is the culmination of a lot of Old Testament passages and a lot of Old Testament prophecies. And what Jesus is now about to tell us in regard to the fate of the righteous people, the fate of the wicked people, what he's going to tell us is that genuine saving faith in the life of an individual is always the result of new spiritual life that God has implanted in that individual. 
And when a person has that new spiritual life which results in true saving faith given by God, then they have to manifest that. They have to show that, and they inevitably will show that, in righteous actions or in right living, right conduct. And that's what he's going to deal with now. He says, in the fate of the righteous, verses 34 to 40, he says, the righteous are blessed or favored by God. Let's see what he says in verse 34. The king, Jesus, who's just sat on his throne, he's judging, he will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father. That means having the eternal favor of God on them. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you before the creation or the foundation of the world. What's the, what is the blessing or the favor that the judge is going to place upon the people of God, the righteous in this case? Well, it's to inherit the kingdom. This kingdom that God prepared before the foundation of the world. This was always the plan. God never had to have a secondary plan, a plan B. He never had to have a backup plan. Why? Because he's always been working out his first and only plan as the sovereign monarch of the universe. He's masterfully orchestrated the whole history of the world, the world he created, to fit this plan. And now it's coming to a culmination point. And now he's going to talk about the actions of the righteous. So the righteous are going to go to his right-hand side. They're going to receive the favor of God, which means they're going to inherit the kingdom that God always intended to establish. Okay, so how? Or on what basis, we might ask, are they going to be declared the righteous ones? How, how do we know the difference? Who's in the wicked? Who's in the righteous category? And what's the basis of the distinction? That's what the next few verses are going to tell us. Verses 35 to 39. He says, I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, showed me hospitality. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in? Or when do we see you needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick and in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. You did for me. He speaks of these brothers or sisters of mine. That's fellow believers, Christians, the true people of God. It's another name for the righteous. Brothers and sisters. Now, his list, he has six parts in this list, but it's not an exhaustive list. It's a representative list, and it's talking about how you treated other Christians, how you treated true followers of God. That's going to tell if you're in the righteous category or the wicked category. But what's the basis? What's the starting point? What's the fundamental foundation for how we know who's in the wicked category and who's in the righteous category? Many have misunderstood this passage, and they've misunderstood it in a couple different ways. Usually it boils down to something like this. Well, the primary purpose Jesus is making in this statement is to commend to us that we should be good to other people. We should feed the hungry and clothe those who need it and give generously. Now, certainly the Bible does speak about those things. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about merely doing what's sometimes referred to as the social gospel or in uh, our secular society is sometimes referred to as 
um, social justice. That's not what he's talking about. Because it's not just indiscriminately for anyone and everyone who's in need. He's particularly saying, if you did these good things, these commendable things, these right things to my children, Christians, that's, that's the key. So it's about how you've treated Christians, not if you've been generous in general in society. The other, place, other places in the Bible speak to that. So what he's not saying is, the ultimate basis for this judgment of who's wicked and who's righteous is how nice you were. Or how many good things you did, or how much of your money you gave away. Were you a swell guy, or not so swell? That's not what he's saying. What's the basis? How, how do we know that's not the basis? Well, for two reasons. First of all, because it's ultimately all predicated on the declaration of God from eternity. That's what he just told us. He said this whole kingdom thing and, and everything surrounding it, including who's going to be in it, is all predicated on what God has predetermined in the triune community of the Trinity. What God has predetermined would happen before the foundation of the world. So it's not based on what you and I do in a temporary period of time. It's ultimately, everything is ultimately based on God's predetermined choice before he even created this world. But secondly, we're told this. The person who identifies, uh, or who God identifies as the righteous person and goes to his right-hand side and enters his kingdom, you'll notice something interesting about them. They don't realize that they've done these good things. They ask the question, wait, when, when did we do all of that? I, I don't remember doing that for you, Jesus. And Jesus reminds them, no, you did it to my followers, and if you did it to my followers, then you did it to me. I accept that directly. So they were oblivious, and this is an important point because later we're going to see the righteous are just as oblivious of how they've disobeyed God's commands. The righteous are oblivious to the extent to which they've done what Jesus wanted them to do. And so clearly they weren't trying to just do these good things in order to earn God's favor or earn a place in heaven because they don't even realize they've done it. When a person truly receives the gospel, and this is the point here, when a person truly receives the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, their life inevitably changes. It's guaranteed. There's no possibility of it not changing. It often changes in ways that even they are not completely aware of, at least not for a long period of time. And that change is not immediate. You don't immediately become perfect. Every person who's truly become a Christian knows that it's still a struggle. We have the Spirit of God in us now. We have the new nature, but we still have that sin nature. It is a struggle daily. Rather, it's, this growth is a, a gradual, sometimes painfully gradual. We would love to see it go faster. But it's a gradual growth. But they do inevitably, any Christian does inevitably become what they otherwise would not be. John Newton gives us an excellent illustration of this. The author of Amazing Grace, many other hymns. He had been, as some of you might be aware, a slave trader before his conversion to Christianity. He had helped, it's estimated, to transport more than 20,000 slaves across the Atlantic. He says, even after he became a Christian, that he would still have nightmares of hearing the slaves crying and screaming under deck as he captained those ships. But Newton had been changed by the gospel. 
He had been changed by Jesus. He had become something different than what he was. And that showed up in many ways. He expresses it in his famous hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. He knew he was a wretch. He knew he didn't deserve God's favor. He knew he wasn't righteous in and of himself. He knew he was in the category of the wicked, but that Jesus had saved him. Part of that change would result in him now working against the slave trade within his lifetime and encouraging others like William Wilberforce to work against it. He also fought against other evils in which he once took part. It was a changed life. And he says this in summary of his life and how the gospel changed him. And it's helpful for us to remember because it could really be said of every true Christian as well. He says five things. He says, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I'm not what one day I will be. But I'm not what I was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. He saw the change, sometimes incremental, sometimes in drastic ways, but he realized the change the Gospel had wrought in his life. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. These actions that his true followers took, sometimes they didn't even realize they were taking, in how they treated other Christians, it wasn't because they were trying to earn God's favor. It's because they had been fundamentally changed by the good news of the Gospel. And so they can't help but live that new life out. Verses 38 and 39 show us that the Christians, because they had a change of motive and a change of inner life, a new nature, they were not aware of how greatly the Spirit of God had changed them over time. Jesus had to point it out to them at the judgment. Verse 40 tells us that there are ramifications for how all of humanity treats Christians. Not because the treatment of Christians earns you a place with God, but rather because the way in which you treat other Christians, God's followers, directly reflects on what you think of Jesus, what you think of God. He goes on, and he'll make this more clear, as he considers the fate of the wicked. Verses 41 to 46. Let me just read verse 41 for us. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The wicked have eternal judgment pronounced against them. But he reminds us that hell, this place of eternal judgment, was not originally created for humans. It was created for Satan and his angels because we're told in Revelation 12, verses 3 to 9 and several other Old Testament passages that a third of the angels followed Satan in a rebellion against God. And God created hell originally for these rebellious angels. But all humans who go against God, who break his laws, are joining in that same rebellion as a third of the angels joined in, and they too will suffer the same fate, which is a terrible thing to consider. What's the reasoning for that particular terrible, eternal, tormenting judgment? Verses 42 to 45. The same reasoning. I was hungry. You gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, but you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, uh, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger 
or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? When? We don't, we don't know when that happened. Verse 45. He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did, not for one of the least of these. That is, one of these brothers or sisters. Remember how Jesus had talked about the least of these? Speaking about um, his illustration of children and how they had a simple faith. And he said all true Christians must have that same simple, childlike faith and trust in the promises of God. And he, says, he speaks of these little ones. He brings that back in here in his final sermon before the cross. And he says, if you didn't do it to one of the least of these little ones, you didn't do it to me. Talking about Christians once again. The reason for the judgment is that the actions of both groups, the righteous and the wicked have demonstrated the true condition of their heart and their attitude towards Jesus. And this leads to the ultimate separation. Verse 46, then they will go away. The right to eternal punishment and to eternal life. But as he's already said, the wicked will go away. Or I should say, I I messed that up there. Uh, The left will go to eternal punishment, the wicked, and the righteous will go to the right to eternal life and enter into the kingdom. Now, what can we conclude from this sober passage? Jesus thought this was important enough, both an answer to the disciples' question to give them these details, and it was important enough in his final sermon, right before he goes to the cross, to make sure his followers were aware of these truths. What can we learn from this and glean from this? Well, we're told in another passage in Galatians 6, verse 10, by the Apostle Paul, he says this, He says, do good unto all men and women, so all of humanity, but especially those who are Christians, he says. What is he saying there and what's Jesus saying in Matthew 25? It's something that the rest of the New Testament reiterates time after time. Which is that the way in which Christians are treated says something about you and your view of Jesus himself. Jesus told his followers early on, he said, if they rejected me, if they treated me poorly, they're going to treat you poorly too. And they're going to take you before judgment seats and they're going to persecute you and they'll kill some of you just as they they are going to do to me. person who treats Jesus' followers poorly has a poor view of Jesus. And that exemplifies a wicked heart towards God. What's the disposition of your heart towards Jesus and towards Christians. Secondly, we need to be very clear. Works don't save you. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is very clear on this. The the New Testament is filled with references to this. It's not by works of righteousness that you do, that, that you earn salvation or heaven. Ephesians 2 tells us very clearly, it's by grace through faith that you're saved. It's not works. But works are a necessary proof of true, genuine faith, Galatians and James tells us. To say it a different way, your actions will reveal your heart and whether there's true saving faith there. So what do your actions, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, what what are your actions revealing about your heart? Thirdly, a person who claims to be a Christian has to think very carefully about how they treat other Christians. We've considered before what Jesus said a few chapters previous to this about the local church. He speaks about the local church over and over again in the New Testament. And one of the commands to Christians is that they need to join together with other Christians in a local assembly, a local congregation or church. 
That's a command given in Scripture for every Christian. But one of the practical outcomes of that is if, if you refuse to do that, if you refuse to gather with other Christians as Jesus commanded you to do, then there's really very little, if any way, for you to obey a myriad other set of commands, like do good to your fellow Christians, bear one another's burdens, fellowship with one another, encourage one another, pray with and for one another, meet the physical needs of one another, love one another, seek unity with one another. How can you do that if you are never together with other Christians in the way that God commanded you to be with them? Such a person refusing to do those things shows by their actions that they're not actually a true follower of Jesus. You, you cannot say, as some unfortunately try to say, I love Jesus, but I don't really care much for Christians. That's just another way of saying I don't care much for Jesus. And this is an important point because many want to claim the name of Christ, but their actions show something very different. And Jesus is telling us here, consider what your actions are revealing about your heart. You cannot fail to show grace and mercy to other Christians and then turn around and claim to be his follower. So to put it a different way, where is your evidence for your love for Jesus by the way in which you treat Christians? Fourthly, what we do here at church has eternal consequences. When we gather together for church, for Bible studies, as a, a local church community, we're not here to amuse you. We're not here to entertain you. We're not here to just do nice social things. All of that can be done elsewhere. What are we here to do? God has placed us here to warn all of humanity, all the people living around us, all the people we go to school with and we work with, to warn everyone that he puts in our path that there is a judgment coming. And they need to get ready. Repent before it's too late. That's what we're doing. And so there's a somberness, there's a seriousness to what we're doing here. Now that doesn't, just to be clear, that doesn't mean that we always have to go around with frowns on our faces and no joy. Of course, the scripture speaks about the fact that as Christians, if we've truly been saved by the Spirit of God through the power of the gospel and the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we of all people should be the most joyful, the most filled with true, heartfelt, eternal thankfulness. And that should come out. But it also, this passage does tell us, though, that what we're doing is very serious. We shouldn't take church and Christianity flippantly. Eternity is at stake. You can't get any higher stakes than that. And the sad reality is, I know many of you would never think to foolishly throw away a great deal of your money gambling. That would be a fool's choice because the house always wins. The, the deck is stacked against you. The numbers are always against you. It's, it's foolish to act in that way with our physical money. But many people who would never think of doing that gamble with their eternal soul every day by not preparing for this final day of judgment. 
And that's part of our goal as Christians in a local church is to warn people, think, consider, are you prepared? Are you ready? Because Jesus is coming. And He's coming at a time you're not going to expect. And there's nothing left that needs doing before He can return. And so we don't know when it's going to be. It could be in a moment. It could be at the end of the day. It could be any time. And once He comes, once He shows Himself, there is no more chance for any human being so we have to warn people now before it's too late. Finally, this brings us to the conclusion which Jesus clearly gives to us here. There's no neutrality. There's only two categories. Many people want to think maybe there's a, there's a neutral option. Maybe through reincarnation or, or some other means, I'll get another chance. So I'll, I'll just sit on the fence and wait it out. No, there's no neutrality. You are either in the category of the wicked or the righteous, and all of us start in the category of the wicked, and there's nothing we can do by our actions to get into the other category. Only by the actions of Jesus. The orientation of our heart is the key, for out of that flows our actions. And Paul preached a sermon in the book of Acts in which he makes this very clear. He says, these times of ignorance, the, the times when people ignorantly ignored the reality of God, he tells his hearers, God overlooked. God, God is giving you mercy for that. But, he says, from that point on, the point at which he's preaching, the point at which Christ came to earth, he says, now God commands everyone everywhere to repent. Acts 17. Why? Because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world by the man whom he has appointed, Jesus, whom he raised from the dead. So what does Paul say there? Everyone needs to repent now. Why? Because there is a guaranteed judgment coming. And if you don't repent now, you will face the full brunt of God's true justice. So do yourself a favor. Before you go to bed tonight, before you fall asleep, ask yourself a few questions. Based on this passage, am, am I a sheep that is the righteous? Or am I a goat, the wicked? Which category am I in? What does my heart show through my actions? Do I possess true saving faith in Jesus? What's my true eternal destiny? Because Jesus is returning one day. And when he does, judgment will be immediate and there are no second chances after that. So we must prepare. We're told in another passage, prepare to meet your God. This is the most important thing that any human being can do is to take time and energy to consider, am I prepared to meet God on His terms? And eternity is at stake based upon how you answer that question. Are you prepared? Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and for Your Son coming and the Spirit opening up the, the reality of these words to us. We humbly ask that you would use this sober warning by Jesus to cause us to truly consider where we stand before you. And I pray that any and all who are hearing this, who don't yet know you truly, whose hearts have not really been changed, that they would repent and turn to you now before it's too late. Help them not to be self-deceived. Help them not to sit on the fence. Help them not to wait because you could return at any time. 
and judgment is coming. Father, I also pray for my fellow brothers and sisters. May we love one another. We thank you that our salvation doesn't belong to us. It's not something we earned. We thank you for the free gift that it was. But help us to respond by loving actions in line with your word and to invite any and all around us to join in that same salvation so they do not need to face Judgment Day with fear, but rather they can face it with hope, knowing that they will enter into your kingdom eternally. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.